Now, I hope I have a voice left after belting those songs out. I know the band probably won't appreciate me bringing this up, but uh, these guys these guys show up at like 3 o'clock to start preparing, and uh, I really appreciate the effort they make not to have our worship be a performance, but to just be something that from the heart uh, glorifies Christ with our attitudes and their attitudes and uh, focusing on these words of truth about who he is. So let's just thank them for all their hard work. I think it's so Thanks a lot, guys. I really appreciate all that you do to lead us in such meaningful worship. Uh, it was almost two years ago, it'll be two years this summer, that I found myself driving through the hollers of Blountville, Tennessee. And uh, I came down this dirt driveway and like six chihuahuas swarmed my car. And uh, I got out of that car and I was like, I'm ready to go to work. And uh, that was the day I sold my first insurance policy. I was sitting in this guy's couch um, in his trailer in Blountville, Tennessee, as he rolled his own cigarettes. And he was kind enough to move the pile of underwear off his couch and sit on the bed so that I would have somewhere to sit where his underwear had just been. I really appreciated that. Um, however, it was on the drive home from that uh, sale, which I will tell you was my one and only sale. I think I made like 60 bucks. Still haven't seen that, by the way. I hope my ex-boss listens to this message because I want my 60 bucks. Um, but I realized insurance sales probably wasn't for me. Um, you know, I had been doing it for about four weeks, and if that was the only money I made, then I probably should find a different way to pay my bills. Uh, I just had a hard time doing sales, and we can talk about that some other time. But here's the point. At that phase in my life, I kind of needed a job. I had just finished up being a graduate assistant coaching track and cross country, doing the grad school thing, and uh, I was kind of looking to see where God was calling me next. The call for us to be in Tennessee was very clear to my wife and I. Um, we knew that's where God wanted us to be, and he was doing great things in our lives. Um, he had given us a new and fresh perspective on who he was um, through just a deep understanding of the gospel that came through going through some difficult stuff. But I felt like, man, like God has really worked on my heart, and I had been praying for a while that he would lead me to the next job so that I could just find some rest and know that he was going to provide for my wife and I. So I quit selling insurance sales, and I, everybody says it's easier to find a job when you already have a job. I will agree with that. Um, and so my first day when I wasn't working, I was like, kind of like, man, like, this is kind of cool. Like, I can just hang out and read and go for a run. It's like I'm a professional runner, except I only run once a day. And um, Yeah, and I didn't work nearly as hard as a professional runner would. But uh, by day two, I would say I would, that had definitely worn off. Um, and I think it was three weeks before I really found another job, and I found myself during those three weeks absolutely miserable. Uh, it was so hard for me to think about my wife being at work, um, and here I am, the man of the house, and I'm sitting on the couch, like, watching soap operas and the weather. Actually, we didn't even have soap operas. All I had to watch was the weather. We had, like, one of those digital TV converter things, and the only channel we could pick up on the air was the weather channel. We had it twice. How does that work out? Two weather channels. Uh, and so I was just going crazy. And I remember I called a good friend of mine, and uh, we ended up meeting at Panera, and I was like, man, I am going nuts. Like, I trust God. I know that he's doing what he is his will in my life, and I know that valuing him is the most important thing, is what it's all about. But I've been really diligent in pursuing him, and I want to honor him with my life, but i got to pay my stinking bills, 
and I'm going crazy. I'm a man and I'm not providing for my family. Like, what is going on? And he was like, that is really hard. Be encouraged. And I was like, what the heck does that mean? Be encouraged? What terrible encouragement. Um, you, guys, you guys feel me on that? I, uh, I, I needed to hear something specific. Like, I wanted... Like, you don't just tell me, be encouraged. Like, you say to somebody, like, well, like, God's going to bring you through this, and I can see that he's really working it out for your good. And although it seems hopeless right now, you know, there's going to be a day where everything's clicking, and he's preparing you. Like, he was just like, be encouraged. And I was like, man, that's not helpful. You see, when I think about, like, the aspects of good encouragement, it comes from someone you respect, someone you value their opinion. Um, it comes from someone who knows your situation well. And I think it also, good encouragement is specific to your situation. And so my friend, I really respected him, I really cared about him, and I valued his relationship, but the whole specificity thing, I think he kind of missed out on that, and that's, it makes it kind of funny. So I can enjoy that, even though at the time, be encouraged. Whenever my wife and I go through something really terrible, we don't know what to say to each other, we're always just like, be encouraged. <laughs> Stick that one in your file. Um, the book of Philippians, I feel like one thing Paul does really well is specifically encouraging the church in Philippi according to the things they were going through. Um, so Philippi was the biggest city in Macedonia, and it was a Roman province. I don't know if you guys remember in the book of Acts, but Paul actually planted a church in Philippi, and the story is really neat. He gets thrown in prison for sharing the gospel, and this giant earthquake comes, and Paul and Silas are busted out of prison. And then the guard's about to kill himself because he can't imagine what will happen to him if these prisoners escape under his watch. And Paul and Silas are like, no, don't do it, don't do it. So the guy doesn't do it. They share the gospel with him. The guy becomes converted. His whole house gets baptized. And uh, then the guard is like, okay, well, like, make sure you keep Paul and Silas at your house. Um, don't let them get away. Then they decide what they're going to do. And they're like, let's just send them off quietly. Like, we don't want anybody to find out what happened because they found out that they were Roman citizens. And Paul and Silas are straight-up rebels. They're like, no, we're not going to go quietly. You've got to drag us out of here because we want everyone to know what you did. That takes some guts. Um, and so they escorted Paul and Silas out of the city. And so Paul and Silas knew what it was like to be persecuted. They knew what the Philippians were going through. Uh, they knew what it was like to be in a place uh, where your message wasn't necessarily going to be accepted. And so I think that when Paul wrote them this letter, he had some credibility. Uh, these guys, these guys meant business, and they weren't just talking. They were living the life. Um, and Paul, when he called them to rejoice in the midst of their circumstances, he knew what that meant. When you looked at Paul's situation, for him to be calling them to rejoice um, in what he was going through, it sounds kind of ridiculous. How can a man who's in prison be writing to other people saying that they need to be rejoicing? Like, that's very paradoxical. Like, when someone's complete freedom is taken away, how is their heart going to be in a state where they're rejoicing in every circumstance. And I think what it comes down to is Paul recognized that his chains weren't just something, um, they weren't something that was holding him back. They were something that God was using. And uh, when we look earlier in Philippians, we checked out Philippians, the first chapter, two weeks ago, um, and it talks about in verse 12 of chapter 1. You guys can open your Bibles to Philippians, by the way, if you want. Um, in chapter 1, verse 12, Paul talks about being chained um, to the guards. And so Paul was chained at all times to two guards of the Praetorium. Uh, these were the Roman guards who even uh, served Caesar. And so we often think of Paul as being in a dungeon when he wrote this, but really he was under house arrest with these two guards with him all the time. He was there for two years. 
And so the way Paul viewed that, he was like, man, like, I've got an audience all the time. Like, I'm going to share the gospel with these guys, and they're around Caesar. What better way to spread the gospel than to be chained to these really influential guards? And when we think about being under house arrest, we're like, what could possibly limit us more? But Paul was like, giddy, because people could come visit him, and he could share the gospel with them, and then here he is, chained to these most influential people in the whole city um, of Rome, where he was writing from. And uh, so Paul understood those chains were exactly where God wanted him to be. Um, that chain, the gospel changes the way Paul viewed all of his circumstances. Uh, they gave him a constant hope, despite something uh, that was really difficult. And he writes to the Philippians to help them enter into that. Um, and honestly, from the time that Paul was writing to them from Rome, the climate hadn't changed much. The Philippians were still going through difficulty um, under Roman oppression. And as we're going to take a look at tonight, there were people... Um, from inside the church who had different perspectives on what the gospel was and how people were right with God uh, that were really weighing them down. And so tonight we're going to look at chapter 3. If you want to turn with me, uh, let's start at verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had... I count it as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Wow. Uh, so evidently, as we see earlier, Paul had addressed this topic with them before, but I think he found it important enough that he wanted to repeat it. Uh, false teachers rob Christians of joy, and the gospel must be defended from false teaching. In this specific case, he's talking about a group of Christians that were speaking to the Philippian uh, church. These believers were from a Jewish background, and they were trying to make Gentile believers, those who weren't culturally or religiously Jewish, think that they need to believe and follow elements of the Mosaic Law in order to be right before God, instead of just having faith in Christ alone. Uh, the Jews frequently refer to Gentiles as dogs, as we see um, early on in that section. And the Jews, uh, they did this, they believed that dogs were unclean, wild, and vicious animals. That's a big insult. Calling somebody a dog um, was just a despicable term. And Paul throws that term back at them. Paul's really blunt in this chapter, if you haven't noticed already. We're going to go through some of these words, and they're pretty powerful images. Uh, so Paul calls them dogs. Uh, to Paul, these Jews were the real threat of defiling God's holy community by teaching them that the, Jew, that the Christians who weren't from a Jewish background uh, needed to follow these Jewish rites in order to be right with God. That's false teaching. That's not the gospel. The gospel was that Christians are justified by faith through Christ alone and his grace um, and not by obedience to the law. 
Um, one thing specifically that marked their teaching was this, uh, this circumcision that Paul zeroed in on. It was the idea that Gentile believers needed to become clean through the Jewish rite of circumcision in addition to faith. Um, that's what truly marked them as entering into God's covenant community, um, as the Jews, uh, the Jews were commanded in Mosaic law to be circumcised. Paul recognized in verse 3 that he, the Philippians, and all true believers were in the camp of true circumcision, um, the circumcision of the heart. That's what happens when one is baptized into Christ. Um, and that that's how we come into that community. And any other means wasn't true circumcision. But listen to this. He called it mutilation of the flesh. Uh, the translation from the Greek means that the scalpel had drifted a little bit. And when we're talking in that neighborhood, that's a pretty powerful metaphor. Let your mind wander. That's what he means. Um, hearing from this, uh, you know, hearing this whole tirade from Paul, naming all these qualifications that he had, if, if uh, Joe the Gentile was saying these things, it may not mean much, but Paul was kind of a big deal. Uh, in case you didn't know, we'll just look through that list of all these qualifications he had. Paul had it all by the Jewish standards. He had the right pedigree. Uh, he was a full-blooded Jew, circumcised on the eighth day, which reflected that his family was obedient to Mosaic law and raising him up in that. Um, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was one of the traditionally leading and noble Jewish families. Um, Paul lived his life uh, in obedience. He was religiously educated. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. That means he was strict on obeying um, not just the law, but in the Jewish cultural customs of, as well. Uh, he was a Pharisee, one of the most orthodox and committed followers of Jewish law. And he was zealous. He was a famous promoter of Judaism and a persecutor of those heretical Christians. Um, Read what the book of Acts has to say in the first seven chapters when they mentioned Saul prior to Paul's conversion. Um, you'll know what that's all about. And he was blameless in law-keeping. Um, and so when Paul told them about these things, they knew that he was talking. He knew that he, they knew that he knew what he was talking about. He wasn't just some schmo uh, spouting off all these accomplishments. Paul had lived that life. Um, but since Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, he came to see that Christ truly was the Savior and that faith in Christ alone was the sole basis for man to have a relationship with God. Since that moment, as Paul says in verse 7, he recognized those fleshly advantages, those things he formerly considered advantages uh, to improve his position with God were actually hindrances. As the more he had hope in them, the more he was convinced that God would accept him based upon them. They really just led him astray and gave him a false sense of salvation based on something that he could do. Uh, so following up in that, in verse 8, we continue on. Paul shifts from the past tense to the present tense in saying, indeed. Uh, more literal translation of that is, what is more? Maybe that's what your Bible has if you're reading the NIV. What is more? Paul came to count. That's present. He came to count even his present good works as a believer as rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ. This includes the most successful missionary career in the history of the church, the personal evangelism of thousands, the planting of many churches. Um, this Greek word that Paul uses, rubbish, um, skybalon, occurs only here in the New Testament. And listen to what this means. Uh, this is some strong language. It refers to excrement, food gone bad, scraps left over a meal, and refuse. Paul was saying that reliance on his former advantages uh, we're not, just, uh, we're not just something that led him astray in a, in a way that only affected him, but they were strongly offensive to God and potentially dangerous. 
Uh, so what Paul had learned was the value of knowing Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, and nothing was more important to him than that. Um, and when he talks about knowing, uh, this is more than just ideological understanding, um, but knowledge that one obtains through personal relationship. Um, it's different from knowledge that we gain through academic study, though I'm not saying that academic study of Scripture isn't important to the life of a believer. Um, information is a part of us growing in our personal faith with God and our personal walk with Him. Um, but this fuller knowledge of God, truly knowing, was dependent on His relationship, uh, His walk of faith. Paul didn't regard anything else in his life worthy of retaining. Um, he wanted a fuller and deeper experience of God and appreciation of His Savior. That's a lot. Paul had been so transformed by the power of the gospel, he desired to live with complete dedication to the will of God, knowing full well what that, uh, what that required of Jesus Christ in his life. Uh, Paul said that he wanted to enter into a life like his, even if that led to a death like his. Um, it meant to Paul death to his own agenda. Um, and it ultimately, it led into Paul being martyred, his physical death. Um, and so, you know, when we study Scripture, guys, we look at the context of Scripture, and we recognize that Paul was writing to an audience. And uh, this is totally one of those passages that doesn't apply to life at all today, right? I guess we should move on to something else. No! That's not how it goes. This is so meaningful in application to the way we live our lives today. Here's a question for you. Have you let anything lead you to think that the basis of your relationship with God and the foundations of its very beginning or in the way that you live out your faith on a day-to-day -day basis is dependent on anything other than faith in what God has done for you in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, you may catch yourself with your own little personal life statement like Paul. Um, maybe yours sounds something like some of these things that, um, that I went up. I grew up in a Christian family and went to church. I faithfully attended Sunday school and youth group or Bible study, and I even prepared for it before I went. And sometimes I had good insight. If I say so myself. I went to camps and conferences and mission trips. I volunteered at Vacation Bible School and I don't even like kids. I mowed old ladies' yards and they paid me five bucks. I didn't drink until I was legal. I don't look at porn anymore. And I broke up with my girlfriend because the physical relationship was moving too fast. I got mentored. I mentored other people and gosh darn it, my pastors liked me. I read my Bible almost every day. I prayed pretty much every night before I went to bed. Do you guys ever catch yourself thinking things like this? I knew I was saved by faith, but the things that held me back because I twisted them around, I began to think that keeping me in God's relationship status as we're good was based on what I was doing, my consistency, my passion, um, my spiritual awareness, and how much I could do, how well I could do it. Uh, how well was I able to meet these standards that I had set up for myself or the standards that the other people who I cared about had set up for me? Uh, I came to experience very little joy in my Christian life when I lived it based upon those things. Um, I understood, uh, the thing that changed it all for me was understanding that the most important thing I could do was every day get down on my knees and recognize my own brokenness and my complete need of a Savior and my complete inability to do that in and of my own doing. Um, like Paul says, those attempts at self-justification this isn't heretical to say this, and I don't think it's crass. It's a load of crap. That's what Paul says, and that's in the Bible. Um, I pray that God will be gracious enough as he, uh, in your life, as he has in my life, and as he did with Paul, to wear you out until you realize that. 
Um, God got a hold of Paul. He literally knocked him to the ground as he traveled and blinded him in the middle of the road. Uh, God has graciously, maybe in slightly more subtle ways, and faithfully done the same thing to many ways, to me, many times in many ways uh, that were very specific to the things that were holding me back from loving him and knowing him. Um, So I want you to think about this. What is God doing in your life? Uh, What is the basis of your relationship with him? When you wake up every morning, do you view your life in one of two ways? Do you feel like you're looking up a stepladder, thinking of what you have to do to climb yourself closer to God? Or do you find yourself standing at the foot of the cross, looking up in awe, um, resting in his grace, and living your life in response to the freedom that you have in Christ? Um, When you believe the gospel, situations like the Philippians and Paul's aren't magically better, but they are saturated in purpose and hope. Um, And you're down with God doing what he wants to do, even if it's really difficult, because he is your joy, and knowing him is your heart's greatest desire. Um, Knowing him in relationship is your heart's greatest desire. Uh, Let's get back into the text. We're picking up at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Let those of us who are mature think in this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Uh, So how does Paul say we respond to the gospel transforming our hearts and reshaping our lives? Um... How do we do that in our view of eternity? And how do we do that in the way we approach our day-to-day living? Um, As Paul says here, our goal for our lives becomes God's goal for our lives. um, And we live in response to that. Like the image of an athlete straining toward the finish line. Um, I love that image. Um, You press on with the goal of knowing Christ more deeply and living out his purposes for you. Uh, When I was preparing for this, I thought this was really funny. The commentary said, uh, you know Paul's a preacher in this section because he says, this one thing I do, and then he lists three things. Um, We love to do that. Uh, The first thing Paul mentions is forgetting what is behind. Um, What this means is don't be complacent in your past success or desire your spiritual life to look like it once was. You guys ever catch yourself thinking back to like any spiritual mountaintop moments you had and like thinking like, man, if I could just go back there and put that in a bottle and carry it with me. I remember those moments I'm feeling down, just uncork it, then I'd be good. And you just want things to be the way they were. Remember these people you used to have a relationship with and how much they could encourage you in your faith. And um, we just want to go back there and sometimes you just can't put that behind you. Uh, that can hold us back and Paul says to forget that. Another thing don't define yourself by your past sin. I don't think it. Uh, I, I don't think it's a stretch to say this was probably a skeleton in Paul's closet. If he was looking on with his thumbs up, holding the jackets of the people who were throwing stones to kill Stephen, um, one of the apostles, I think that Paul may have struggled with letting his past sin define him as the chief persecutor of the Christian church. Um, and so. Forget in such a way that your past, good or bad, will have no negative bearing on your present spiritual life. Uh, Straining forward towards what is ahead. What is ahead? Uh, Straining towards what is ahead. There's no such thing as comfortably straining. 
you know, it's kind of funny. We, we oftentimes think that, like, the role of, like, our faith is to, like, make our lives more comfortable. But Paul says that living in response to the gospel, we should be straining. And that's totally countercultural. What are we straining towards? We're straining towards the goal, as Paul says. Single-minded focus to know God and achieve his purposes for our lives. Uh, like an athlete, uh, we got some we got some great athletes in this room. Some people who I am really impressed with, and I won't embarrass them by pointing them out. Um, but athletic success doesn't just come. Andrea, yeah, it's you. <laughs> athletic success doesn't just come uh, by chance. No one steps on the starting line of a championship race and says, "Well, uh, this this is you know, uh, just thought I'd show up today and see how things worked out." I mean. That's certainly not what people do who want to compete at a high level. Uh, and Paul's not talking about your people who go to the YMCA and play basketball once a week. Uh, it takes dedication. It takes commitment. It takes intentional pursuit of the one thing that matters most, even if you don't always feel like it. I don't think many people feel like getting up and going to the pool at 6 o'clock in the morning. I don't think many people want to go out and run in the snow for a long period of time or go pump some iron when your arms are still sore from yesterday. Um, but if, you're, if that's your goal and that's your desire, you don't just assume it's going to happen and you don't rely on anyone else to make it happen. You pursue that single-mindedly. You dedicate yourself to it even when you don't feel like it. Um, you know, one thing I really enjoyed about coaching was talking to athletes right before they competed. And uh, because, you know, like, you're so nervous and you really want to do well. And as a coach, like, I just, I just love to try and, like, Anybody like pump-up speeches, like locker room speeches? Man, I love to listen to a good locker room speech. But, uh, you know, I remember telling, like, people, listen, like, what is your, like, what do you love most? Like, when you get in this race, you're going to be tempted to back off, but you, may, you have a choice. You can push through it, and you can achieve the goal that you set out to, um, or you can just let it all go. Um, it's going to hurt, but it's going to be worth it. Um, so when you're tempted to back off and just let it go and be content with less than your best, you have to remind yourself like why you're doing what you're doing. This is what you want the most. Don't give in. Get after it. Go get it. Claim that prize. And uh, I think that sometimes when I talk about, when Paul talks about the Christian faith with this kind of determination and pursuit, people can say, uh, well, he just said do something. So that means like he's being legalistic. Uh, Forget about that. It's really hard in the Christian life to think about the process of sanctification, becoming more like God, without it becoming all about what can we do to earn our way to God's favor or keep ourselves in God's grace. But that's not what it's about at all. Um, it's about, from the gospel, the fact that Christ has redeemed us and brought us into relationship with himself when we come back to that and recognize our need for him and his provision of a savior, when we depend on his spirit to help us grow closer because enjoyment with him and fellowship with him is so much better than anything else, we're going to pursue him. Um, and so sometimes that may look a lot like a lot of fun and something that we really enjoy. Other times it may seem a little bit like straining. And here's why. I think we have to acknowledge that while sin no longer reigns in our lives, um, we're not defined by our sin, but our hearts are still deceptive. We don't always want what's best for us. Um, the way that we act and um, the way that we feel isn't always going to reflect what we really know is true deep down 
inside about our identity being in Christ. Um, but here's the truth. God's gospel is true regardless of how you're feeling. Um, so what we have to do is seek to know him more, um, to meditate on his gospel, to study his word, to know him in relationship, to spend time with him in prayer, and allow him to speak to us through his living word, um, through community as part of the corporate church, and through relationship with other, others, even when we don't feel like it. Um, when he's your greatest desire in response to knowing and feeling his gospel change your heart, we search after, we run after him, we strain after him, um, no longer letting the past hold us back. And so my question to you tonight is, what is driving you? Uh, when you think about your spiritual life, what is driving you? Are you trying to obtain a status with God or keep his favor based on your own efforts? Paul says that's rubbish. Um, if you're being driven by a desire to enjoy him, to enjoy a relationship with him, to know him, and to act in response to that, fulfilling his goals for your life, um, and living with deep purpose um, in response to the gospel. That's what it's all about. That's what it boils down to. Um, you know, the Westminster Confession is a group, uh, a group of Englishmen. Dan's my Reformed theologian in residence here at ECC, personal mentor. Um, the Westminster Confession, a bunch of reformed-minded people in England, searched all of Scripture and said, what is the chief end of man in the first article of the Westminster Confession? And it was to glorify God and enjoy Him. That's what all of Scripture points to. The, pur the purpose of man is to glorify God through having a relationship with Christ, living your life in response to that, and enjoying Him. Are you enjoying your relationship with Christ? Um, if you're not, then I wonder if you really are trusting in Him alone for your salvation, or if you're trusting in Christ plus something else, or if you're viewing your relationship with Him on a day-to-day -day basis as based on something that you're doing to maintain that, rather than resting in the freedom that you have in His grace and responding in the way that you act. Um, and so, I want you guys to think about that. We're going to take a minute just to quiet our hearts um, as we move back into a time of worship but that image that we had before. Do you find yourself standing at the foot of the ladder or at the foot of the cross? Um, let me challenge you. Remind yourself of the gospel every day and strive hard after Christ. Um, to know him and enjoy him is the greatest joy in our lives. And as Paul has shown here, that's something that's present in even life's most difficult situations. And that's how Paul can call them to rejoice when it seems like craziness. And uh, that's his call to us as well. So... Do it up. Uh, Dan, come on up. We're going to take some questions. Fire them at me. Do we have anything? Yeah, I have a new appreciation yes. for how hard your job is in mediating all these questions. Because you got some good questions oh, here. Oh, no. real good. That's <laughs> all I've got. just going to read now, my notes again. There's a couple that might like be short answered. Uh, so uh, one person asked, Paul said that he was zealous in his persecution. What does he mean by that? He, I think that when we read the book of Acts, Paul wasn't someone who was just passively standing by um, and allowing the church to be persecuted, but he really had a hand in it, and he wanted that. He viewed the Christian church as people, people saying that salvation was based on uh, faith in Christ. This is completely contradictory to what Paul believed. He believed 
that faith um, had nothing to do with it. It was really what you can accomplish through your obedience to the Mosaic Law. And so Paul wanted nothing more than for the Christian church to die, and not just like in a metaphorical sense. He tried to kill Christians and succeeded in doing that. Um, so he was a very zealous promoter of yeah, destroying the church before he totally went 180 degrees and becoming the biggest proponent for it. And then the Jews who were on his side all wanted to kill him. Yeah, I mean, he's, he saw it as part of his religious duty. Uh, and so he was a zealous Jew, and so it was part of that zeal that spilled over to persecuting the church. So. Uh, do you know how long it was after Paul wrote Philippians that he was executed? That was one of the other questions. I don't. It was within a couple of years, but I don't have exact dates either. We're not encyclopedias. We can, we can, we can fake it, it sometimes, but yeah. <laughs> I'm in a religious studies class. They don't know when he was executed. Okay. He's never run off in the distance and died. Church history says that he was executed shortly after his imprisonment here. We don't know the exact date, but he was executed, uh, and so we'll we'll tweet it. How about that? So get on the Twitter and we'll, we'll tweet it. So. Nice. Okay, uh, here's one that I thought was really, really, they're all really good. I hate to sing on it. Really good ones. But what does Paul mean by resurrection? That's a better question than others. You gonna listen to that? Sorry. <laughs> what does Paul mean by resurrection? Somebody feeling prideful out there. <laughs> justifications based on their question asking, huh? What does what? By <laughs> <laughs> resurrection of the dead, it seems to me that this is his source of joy. See, you weren't paying attention. Now you gotta read it. <laughs> I am reading it. I'm, a, I'm not just a. I'm not an auditory thinker. I have to see things, and I'm a verbal. Processor, so I'd talk that all out for you to get myself in a position to answer it. I think that he's, um, let's, let me look at the text here. I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Um, I think that he's really referring to the day that um, all things will be made new, whether that's when Christ comes again or when Paul dies and there is completion to his spiritual life. Um, and so I would say that that is either when Christ comes again, which in the early church they thought was going to be really soon, or when Paul dies and his spiritual life is finally no longer the straining after Christ, but he's there in the complete presence of the Father and, and Christ. Yeah. Uh, Paul didn't see... There's death, and when you die, Paul says that that's great, that's gain. He says that right there in Philippians 2. And so gain for him was going to be in spirit with God in heaven, with Christ in heaven. But that wasn't the, the end of the story for Paul. He looked forward to the resurrection of the dead, where we, we receive resurrection bodies like Christ had. Um, so he was looking forward to that as kind of the end game. Uh, I don't know that that's the sum total of his joy, though. Uh, I think that that's kind of a step towards what he's actually looking forward to, and that's eternal life with Christ. You know, he says, I'm straining, I, I count all the stuff that I have as, as rubbish compared to what? To knowing him. And, and I'm straining so that I can gain Christ. Not just life everlasting, but gain Christ. Uh, and so I think the resurrection is part of what he's really joyful about. The true joy is, though, in gaining Christ for eternity through the resurrection of the dead. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Do we have time? And it's really cool to think about that, like our walk of faith. This relationship we have with, have with Christ is one day going to be like really clear and tangible, 
And sometimes it can be really hard. Like, our walk of faith is exactly that, a walk of faith. But one day there's going to be completion to that when we're face-to-face with the Heavenly Father. Man, we keep getting more, too. Uh, here's another really good one. Uh, we naturally set expectations and standards for ourselves and others. Are those bad? How do we avoid that live slash shine more in God's grace? Well, how do we avoid that and live and shine more in God's grace? I think that, uh, I mean, it's inevitable that we do set standards for ourselves, but I think that what's really important is that our standard reflects Scripture and is um, formed by Scripture. And so is your standard something that is an attempt for you to be justified according to how you think that should occur? Or is it according to what God says your standing with him is based upon? Um, And so it's really easy for us to create standards for ourselves, and that's our natural default mode. Um, We want to be able to decide what is right for us and when we can feel like everything is good to go. And that's just the, I mean, that's the way that my heart will go back to even when I know the truth. And so I think it's really important for us to remind ourselves what our true standard is, what standard we're called to, and in response to that, then to live, rather to live um, kind of like John talked about last week. Are we living in response to the threats in our lives? Or I think we could even say, are we living in response to the standards we could, could create to ourselves, or are we living in response to the gospel? Yeah, I would just add, I think there's maybe a misunderstanding of the gospel sometimes, and it's that God no longer has a standard. Uh, he does. His standard is still perfection and holiness, and he calls us to that. So not only should we have standards, but God has standards for us. The gospel doesn't say he's done away with those standards. It says Christ has met those standards for you, uh, and he's united you to Christ through your faith. And so the standard's been met, but we still strive uh, to live into that in a way. Uh, so standards are good, um, and God has standards, so we ought to also. One more? Mm-hmm. Is good? Because we keep going because they keep sending Yeah, let's do one more. Okay. Um, how do we confront other believers that seem caught to be in a saved by works system? That's tough. Mm-hmm. That is, that's really difficult because you don't want to seem like you're preaching down to someone, like you've got it all figured out and they haven't. I think there's something that's really important when we share the gospel with anyone is to recognize our own individual brokenness, our complete inadequacy before the Father to um, gain his favor through achieving his standards. You know, it's kind of like that old uh, joke that pastors and really religious people like, like, well, there's more than one way to get to heaven. You believe in Jesus or you're perfect. And, you know, um, we all know that we can't be perfect. And God has a holy standard as we as. Dan just talked about, and so we have to kneel down before the Father and beg for his mercy, um, but the good news is that um, the punishment that we should receive for our injustice against the Father by disobeying his standards um, is something that Christ took on himself. He's able to be merciful because he is just, and he absorbed the price himself um, through the death of his Son, and when we look to him in faith, we can, we can be entered into that. But I think that it's just so important to emphasize when we're sharing the gospel with anybody that apart from, apart from Christ, we're the same. I mean, I'm a broken individual who just has to look to him alone. And so um, really humbling yourself is something that can make that more effective. But um, I just think gentleness is really important, too, in the way that we approach that. 
I agree, because sometimes I think our language comes off as we're relying on our works when it's not really the intentions of our heart. Even the way we talk about, you know, placing our faith in Christ can sometimes come off sounding work-based. You know, I said a prayer, or I devoted my life. Well, that's making it sound like you did something that is earning your salvation. So maybe give people a little credit, you know, or give them some leniency when their language might sound work-based. It might not actually be. And I found that it's sometimes better, easier to confront with compliments than it is with, you know, harsh words. And something like, wow, you have a lot more confidence in your abilities than I have in mine. You know, uh, that might get people thinking, especially if they respect you a lot. If you really want to be bold, man, you've got a lot more confidence in your abilities than Paul had. Uh, you know, <laughs> he, he didn't have much in his. So subtle digs are maybe better than, do you believe in works righteousness? No. You know, most people are going to cringe at that. Uh, but probing a little bit to help what's really underneath the words, I think, is probably helpful. Man, great questions. There's still more here that maybe we could answer through the website or something. We get around. <laughs> but great. Cool. Band, you guys want to come back up? Thanks.